in case you haven't, just make sure you've got two leaflets. The yellow one is basically an outline of the talk, so all the sort of headings are there, and hopefully there's a bit of space for you to take notes. Uh, we're going to do a number of different things. There'll be quite a bit of talking from me, especially before lunch, because there's quite a lot of uh, territory to cover. Uh, but we'll be watching a few film clips, listening to songs, looking at some paintings. There'll be the chance to discuss every now and then. And after lunch, we'll do a bit more sort of just buzz group stuff, just thinking about how we respond to all of this stuff. And then there's a sort of media booklet. I'll refer to this occasionally, particularly because in the back there are some of the lyrics for some of the songs that I haven't managed to get up on the screen. Um, I'll point you to those as and when. And there are a number of things that are in here that I'm not going to have time to talk about. But basically this is maybe a springboard for looking at other things after this. So this is an exhaustive. Um, it's just a, maybe to sort of whet your appetites and so on. So please sort of uh, be looking at both of those. So our first talk, where have we come from? Now you're probably wondering why I called the day even better than the real thing. Uh, those who are trendy like me will know that that is the name of a U2 song. And uh, if I hadn't been fiddling around with my computer beforehand, I was going to play you that, but I don't have time now. But the words are in the back. I don't think it's one of their best songs by any means. And in fact, most of the song doesn't really have much to do with what we're talking about at all. It's just that line. It's a, basically a love song, and uh, Bono is singing, you are even better than the real thing. Now, when you stop to think about that sentence, you think, what on earth can he mean? How can something be better than what is real? Well, actually, that leads us into thinking a lot about postmodernism, what it's all about, and so on. And I hope we're going to cover quite a lot of ground, but I hope you'll just generally get the, the, the gist. I don't expect you to sort of pick up everything I talk about, uh, but just to get a gist and a sense of where we're at. So what I want to do to begin with is just to look at a film clip, uh, a song by Sting, and a painting, and just think about, as we're watching and listening, what these have in common. All right, now the film clip is from a film called Reality Bites, which came out in 1994. Uh, has anyone seen that? A handful. It is an archetypal postmodern generation movie. And uh, basically, uh, the subtitle of it is Love in the 90s. It came out in 94. But there are, I'm going to um, have about two or three different clips from it during the day, um, because I think there are a number of things in it that really illustrate what we're talking about. So we'll start with that, and then listen to some music. Now, have you had a chance to sort of take in that picture as well? Just have a look at it. Um, I've got a poster of it at the back, so you can look at it at lunch as well. Patrick Caulfield died just last year, and there was a retrospective. I think, was it, someone was saying, was it in the National Gallery last year? And this is now up in Tate Liverpool, but it was in Tate Modern before that. What do these three things, if anything, have in common? Any thoughts? Yeah. Personal relationships are key, definitely, and we'll come back to that. Yep. Anything else? I'm going to go back to your client and even better than the real thing. I'm not sure that these people have any certain conception of reality. Right. Hence the applause when she's at the beginning, you know, she doesn't know. Yeah. Because that release is authentic. Yep, absolutely. It's authentic and, and honest. And actually, it comes across as actually very uh, humble. And anyone who says that they do have an answer, well, how do you know? And um, we'll come back to that. Yep. Um, 
Right, okay, and that's particularly strong in the Sting song, but um, Winona Ryder's voiceover at the beginning of the the film clip says, you know, how do we deal with the mess that we've inherited? In other words, from the previous generations. We're going to be growing up in this world that was pretty much destroyed by um, the sort of baby boomers and so on. So how do we deal with this? So you can't trust them to come up with a solution. We've got to, but we don't know what it is. No foundations at all, yeah. I mean, there's that great moment, you know, when one of the guys is, what is asked, what is your goal? And he says, yeah, I'd like to get a career or something. I, you know, just to exist, really. Anything else? Although, yeah, basically Sting assumes that... Sting actually does believe in God, but believes all kinds of funny things about him. But he certainly doesn't think that the Holy Church, and he's from a Catholic upbringing... So obviously he's thinking in terms of, but I think it, you know, we can't just say that. It's, it's the whole of Christianity. He thinks that's not the answer to find out about God anymore. Yeah. Is the capital U in the last two, and the simply no capital U in the last verse? Uh, it's probably my typo. But, it's, it was, it, but I thought it was quite interesting. Right. You know, that you with a capital might be God, but you with a small might be God. Oh, right. I think it's, I don't think there is, I think that's probably my fault. But um, that's interesting. And actually, that proves something we're going to talk about this afternoon, that actually we can have all kinds of fun with interpretations. Uh, the you is definitely a girlfriend in the song, cause, and I think it is a profoundly tragic song. I find it very, very moving, this song, because basically he's saying, look, all I've got is my love. And if I didn't have that, I don't know what I'd do is an understatement, isn't it, really? I'd be completely stuffed, is basically the point. The title of the day, even better than the real thing, that could be a title for the picture, couldn't it? What have we got in the picture? We've got this guy. It's called After Lunch, so it's obviously in a sort of cafe or something. The guy looks bored out of his brains. He's probably even maybe asleep. And everything is this sort of monochrome blue. That is the real world. The painting is not actually a photograph. It is, it is actually Caulfield's painting. It's incredibly detailed and intricate painting work there. Uh, of a chateau, and basically, what is more real? It's the, the, the real is actually the virtual world on the picture, on the wall, not the cafe. And there's something very poignant about that, that actually the, the real world is humdrum, tedious, meaningless, so we need to find some sort of meaning, if not excitement, in the virtual. And that is going to be a major theme of the day as well. That just sort of whets your appetite a bit. A lot of these things we're going to come back to. I'm going to refer to these uh, three things in a moment as the day goes on. Now, what is this thing, postmodernism? There's a big argument as to precisely what it is. And it's very easy to dismiss it as a fad. And I know some preachers who just think, yeah, postmodernism, it's just existentialism or just something else, uh, and just file on all kinds of different words ending in ism. Uh, I don't know what that bleat was. But... Um, I think there is a reality, and we need to be sensitive to it. I think one of the problems is that it's such a big thing and that it's such a, a varied thing that it's actually very hard to pin down. But I think that's precisely the point. So some people, if you think of the, the, the word itself, postmodernism, postmodern or postmodernity, the post, the word um, post comes from the Latin word meaning after. Now, that post actually is um, ambiguous. It can either mean the logical conclusion of modernity. In other words, everything was heading towards this point. So this is, you know, this is after the sort of 
um, the, the outworking of, well, the Enlightenment, and we'll come back to that in a minute. This is just the natural outworking of it. Or it's postmodernism, as in it's saying, well, modernism's had its day, but we're going to reject it. We've got to move on. It was deeply flawed. It made lots of crucial errors. And our world is in a complete mess precisely because of that. And so we reject it and are looking for something new. And that leads to the idea that actually, if you think about it, postmodernism is a negative description. It's saying it's not modernism. It doesn't know what it is yet. It's just not that. And like all things that form their identity about, from something that isn't, uh, that uh, leads to one or two problems. And actually, uh, people point out that actually it, it isn't a, a coherent or a structured worldview or anything like that. In fact, it's the rejection of worldviews. Now, don't worry if that doesn't make any sense to you at all. I think it will by the end of the day. But I think the point is that actually all three are probably what's going on. Because there are lots of different people who are tapping into this all around the world, but particularly in the West, and who are trying to sort of grapple with it. And they come at various points on the spectrum, which is why it's very difficult to try and get your head around it. Certainly very hard to try and give just three talks on it. I've been sort of amassing material that could have lasted several weeks, and we'll see how we get on today. We've got to understand that we're dealing with the realm of worldviews, and we just need to be very... I'll go through this very quickly. What is a worldview? Well, Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham, describes a worldview as the grid through which we perceive reality. The grid through which we perceive reality. And reality, by that means absolutely everything that is, but also everything that we experience of reality and how we interpret reality, whatever reality is. Okay. Now, you might not think you've got a worldview, but you do. Everybody does. Even if they hadn't, haven't used words to try and describe it. All of us do it. Uh, James Sire, and I'm going to uh, recommend one or two of his books as well. James Sire says it is the set of presuppositions and assumptions held about the basic makeup of the world. Now, it's presuppositions and assumptions. So again, you don't have to have thought it through. It's just what you assume to be reality. You don't have to be clever to have one. Everybody has one. It's basically how we think about the world and interpret it without thinking about it. How we interpret someone who comes up to us in the street. How we interpret what happens on TV. How we inter- All these things, our interactions with our family and so on. Now, I think if you've lived, ever lived cross-culturally, you'll be much more aware of this. And I can remember when we first moved to Uganda getting very confused because you would see, quite normally, walking down the main street, you'd see two policemen with their sort of rifles held together with string holding hands. And actually sometimes not even that, just holding little fingers. Two policemen in an African context. You double-take at that and you think, what is that? Because in this culture, that means something very specific. (laughs) In that culture... That thing that we think it means is actually illegal. Now, it means something different. And basically, a Ugandan wouldn't think twice about that. In fact, you hardly ever find a man and a woman holding hands, even if they've been married for 40 years. Now, the younger generations, you're finding that because they've watched Hollywood. But, but it, it's a very different culture. Now, basically, what we're talking about is trying to understand the culture around us in a way that um, gets us into the mindset 
of how they interpret it. A Uganda would interpret that thing very differently from the way I would. So in a sense, we've got to think cross-culturally about our own culture. But it's much more profound than simply how we relate to one another. It includes everything in life. It starts with how we think, leads to everything about us, including how we live, act, and relate. And traditionally, a worldview will answer the big questions of life. Who are we? You know, those questions of identity. Where have we come from? Where we are going? You know, sort of an origin and a purpose, a beginning and an end. It'll face up to the fact that there is something wrong with the world, usually. So it'll ask, what's wrong? Why is it wrong? And then it'll ask for the solution. What's the solution to what's wrong? Now, these answers must fit with how we live. You know, it's no good just having a sort of a set of questions that you wake up on Monday morning and think, no, but that's rubbish. That doesn't fit with my experience going to work or whatever it might be. And you might perhaps immediately, if you're a Christian here, you might be thinking, ah, oh, yes, I see how they correspond to the Christian message. But everybody does it in, the same, in different ways. You could be a, Mud- a Buddhist, a communist, a hedonist, a Muslim. Everybody does it. And worldviews are doing the same. Now, it might be that your worldview says, I don't know the answer, but it's still seeking and asking the question. Do you see the point? And put together, these answers often form a big story. Now, story is a sort of buzzword amongst postmoderns. They love the word story, and we're going to come back again to that again and again. And it's sometimes called a grand narrative, or even a meta-narrative, which basically means a grand narrative or a big story. One of the problems with postmoderns is they love jargon. I tried to give a bit of jargon at the back of the notebook, which I don't expect you to sort of pick up all, the, all of it now, but um, it, it's basically a resource for you. So the thing about these narratives is that traditionally there's been the assumption that what I understand as a grand narrative of life, in other words, how it all works, ought to be accepted by you. So I'm going to try and convince you that my way of understanding the world, my grand narrative, should be yours. That is the principle behind Christian evangelism, isn't it? We tell the gospel because we believe that our story should actually be also your story. A communist does the same by revolution. A Muslim does the same. A capitalist does the same. What is it about bringing freedom and democracy for the markets? If you have a grand story, the assumption is that you think it's grand enough for everybody. Perhaps you're beginning to see some of the problems, but we're running a bit too quickly ahead of ourselves. Because what we're going to try and do is work out why do people react in certain ways when we start telling them the gospel? Why do they have a problem with that? We think it's good news. They want us to shut up. Why? So we're going to need to go on a worldview journey, if you like, Tracing the steps, particularly in the West, and it is a Western worldview journey for good or ill. There are all kinds of reasons for this. It has been the dominant worldview in the West uh, for several centuries. And European history, and especially colonialism, has meant that this worldview story has been shared by people across the world, and still is. It was Britain, and uh, French, and German, and Portuguese, and Spanish um, colonialism but uh, particularly strong through the British Empire and then now through the American Empire. And so these Western uh, worldview journeys are impacting everybody, and I think a fascinating study is seeing how it's impacting South Africa very strongly since uh, the fall of apartheid. There are all kinds of things one could talk about that. 
And so we're going to have to go on a pretty, journey, a pretty quick journey. It's going to be a crude journey. I'm going to miss out lots. I'm just going to refer to a few names, and you're going to be thinking, whoa. But that's okay. You've got the outline here, and you can sort of follow some of these things up afterwards. Now, if we take our grid as these sort of questions, as something of a sort of launch pad, then we're going to see how the um, worldview um, has been challenged and, and changed. Now... We're going to start with the pre-modern in that case. Now, the pre-modern. Basically, we're talking about the medieval period. If we take that sort of diagram, that artist's uh, model as a sort of symbol of you, me, and humanity and trying to understand ourselves, let's just see where we fit. Now, the ancient worldview had a very... The the pre-modern worldview had a very clear idea of where we fit. Okay, Uh, The medieval person knew his or her place, not just in terms of gender politics, and there are a lot of things that one can say about that, but in terms of the whole universe. Everybody's status in society was appropriate uh, to their status uh, and pretty fixed. So the class system actually had its origins in an understanding of God and those God had put in power for various reasons. And there is a biblical foundation that you can see for that. God has put those in power in power. And basically, right down from the king to the serfs at the bottom, the feudal system was very strong. And everybody had their place, and it was pretty unchanging because God made it like that. That was the understanding. It's all part of the big picture. Everyone's in their right place. And actually, there's this three-tier universe, heaven above, hell beneath. Where am I going? Where am I from? Well, a very clear and strong belief in the creation And in the return of Christ at the end of the era, a very fixed, clear, directional pattern. So it's a line. Do you see the point? God is at the center of everything, of history, and human beings are at the center of God's plans. And that is one of the reasons why people thought the earth was the center of the universe. Because if human beings are the center of God's plans, why would he put them anywhere other than the middle? And he made the world for his glory, he will return to judge, and he will rescue. More on that in a moment. But time is heading in one direction, and the geography of the universe is simple. A perfect uh, illustration, and I've cut it out from there, is, is this painting by Hieronymus Bosch of The Last Judgment. And basically, you, you get a very lurid, grotesque imagination at work of what hell is like, but you can still see the three tiers quite clearly. Hell at the bottom, earth and Christ on the throne coming to judge. So it's uh, pretty heavy stuff, and everything is very fixed. Just go back again a moment. What you have then is the question, well, what is wrong? Well, sin and rebellion are clearly the problem. They're what is wrong with it. Now, there are various variations in the pre-modern world as precisely what sin means. Um, So, for instance, very prevalent was the idea that sin was actually sex, which dates back to the early fathers, uh, but this had a massive impact uh, on the medieval era and is one of the reasons why priests in the Catholic Church had to be celibate because sin was yucky and disgusting and uh, it was uh, impure. And so that's why you had to get away from it. Sin is clearly the problem, but basically it all boils down to a rejection of the order of God placed in the universe. And the order included the feudal system, do you see? So actually to, sort of, to have ideas above your station was almost to be tantamount to sinning because you were breaking the order and the pattern the way God did. Do you see? 
that it actually had quite a devastating effect and a distortion of what the Bible says about sin. Now, there's a lot in there that we would recognize if we're Christians, but there's actually a lot that is a distortion or a twisting or just letting your imagination run right, and the Bosch picture is a case in point. Now, it's not surprising there'd be things that you recognize because actually the gospel, the Christian message, is a pre-modern message. It is over 2,000 years old. So, of course, there are going to be things that, and the influence is going to be strong, but there are all kinds of things that accompanied it in the Middle Ages, superstition, a lack of individual comprehension. People did not understand. Most people were illiterate. The only people who were literate were those in monasteries. Many priests in local churches couldn't read either. They just sort of garbled through the Latin of the services from memory. And most of the time got it wrong, but no one knew. No one noticed. And that explains why the image is such an important thing in the Middle Ages, why you have um, stained glass and the mystery plays, you know, like in York and in Germany and so on. Uh, paintings. Because people couldn't read, so how did you communicate? Well, you communicated something through image. Now, much of this will be tackled by the Reformation uh, a bit later. Now, the Renaissance, uh, but uh, we'll come to that in a moment. What, what are some of the features of this period? Well, it's theistic. God is clearly at the center. Ecclesiastical power was incredibly strong. The church basically was at the center of society. If God was at the center of the universe, the church was his main spokesperson, mouthpiece. So inevitably, that had a head start. They were God's agents on earth. And that explains partly the power of the Catholic Church in medieval Europe. Very, very strong. And then there was the strong sense of hierarchy that we've talked about, but that flowed out of this you see, the rigid structures didn't stop just within the church. They extended through society. So if sin is a rejection of God's order in society, you can see why people, many felt that they had to stick with their lot. Many people didn't, and they were frustrated, and they jumped at the bit. But most people thought were quite sort of fatalistic about it. They say, well, this is the way it is. And it was actually in the church's interest to keep it like that. And you can do a whole lecture on how the church in the Middle Ages used a number of things to keep people in, in, under their control. Well, there were developments. Then comes, oh, now you can look at this now, the Renaissance and the Reformation. I, I'm going to rush through. Both require a lecture on their own, but I'm going to rush through them in about three minutes. Basically, humanism, the term humanism arose during the sort of Renaissance and later period. And basically, it wasn't sort of what we understand humanism to be. It's not about, you know, uh, rejecting God and so on, or it will mean that later. But basically, it's about a flourishing of learning and the arts and, and you know, being human. So, for instance, at university, I did classics, and the title of the course was Literae Humaniores. In other words, human letters or human writing or literature, do you see? Uh, which is a very medieval sort of, well, Renaissance idea. That we're actually learning about being people, so in other words, it's just beginning to, to push the boundaries a bit of this medieval worldview. And um, it was a revival in the learning of the classical languages, particularly Greek, but also Hebrew, um, in order to do this whole business of ad fontes, which is the Latin for getting back to the fount, to the, the origins, seeing them in their original uh, sources. So this is why there was a flourishing of learning the New Testament in Greek and Hebrew for the Old Testament, because actually it was illegal in the Middle Ages to read the Bible in your own language. It was actually illegal. That is why Wycliffe lost his life and why Tyndale lost his life. 
because they were translating the Bible into English. Again, it was a way that the church used to keep the power. If you have it in a, in a, um, a native language, people might be able to read the Bible and find out that you're saying something slightly different. Well, that's precisely what was going on at this time. People started reading the original, and they found that actually the Vulgate, which was the Latin translation, which is a monumental translation by one man, St. Jerome, an amazing achievement for one person, translated the whole Bible into Latin, inevitably he made some mistakes. One or two really quite crucial ones. The classic one is when Jesus says, repent and believe, the Latin is penitentiam agite, which means do penance and believe which fundamentally changes what Jesus is saying. And the whole doctrine of penance comes from that mistranslation. Now, in the Renaissance, people started looking at the original sources and saying, no, it doesn't say that, it says repent, which is actually a very different thing. There was um, a growth of middle-class society as well during this period. Before it had been the nobility and the serfs, basically, but with the beginnings of colonialism in Europe, People began to be more wealthy as trade developed, particularly in Holland and Portugal and beginning in England and so on. And particularly after the discovery of the New World by Columbus, suddenly the world was much bigger than they thought. That made them think a bit because before they thought that the world was everything they knew. But suddenly it's like someone's lifted the the ceiling off and there's a bigger world out there to discover, things to learn, very exciting. And so people began to be wealthier and they had more time because of their wealth. And they, what did they want to do with it? Well, it, wasn't in the, it was in the days before TV and video and PlayStations. They, they wanted to learn to do what had been deprived. They'd been deprived of before. And this coupled at the same time, and it's just one of those sort of fortuitous things, that about the same time, printing was invented in, in the West. Obviously, China had had it for much longer. But, but printing was invented in the West. And suddenly, you could find that someone would be saying something in Wittenberg like Luther, and within weeks, what he'd said, you could be reading at your breakfast table on a pamphlet in London. Whereas before, in the Middle Ages, Wittenberg might have been, you know, the seat of uh, learning, and Luther might have been giving his lectures there, but the sort of handful who heard him would have been the only ones. There might have been reports of it. Someone might have copied it. You see, in the Middle Ages, books were handwritten one by one. They were incredibly expensive. But printing actually democratized learning. Because suddenly, now everybody has access to it. It's still expensive. You know, if you're a serf, if you're right at the bottom, you can't afford it. But many more people can. They can start reading it for themselves and start thinking, hey, I get this. And ideas begin to spread like wildfire. And that is one of the reasons why the Reformation gripped so fast. Because people had access to these ideas. And then there was the growth of nationalism. You see, this coupled with the fact that people were getting a bit fed up of the Pope. What gave the Pope right over our nation-state? Why should he be the one who determines how we behave, you know, and, and, and so on? And it's a bit like the sort of arguments you have on the sort of uh, uh, europhobic um, end of uh, British politics. You know, why should Brussels set our tax rates and so on? You know, this is the sort of thing. Well, this, in a funny sort of way, is what was going on uh, around the Renaissance Reformation time. People began to say, well, who's the Pope? Who does he think he is? Now, in 1513, the king of France decided that he wanted total control over the French Catholic Church. He wanted the power to appoint bishops. Quite an interesting thing to do, quite a radical thing to do, and you can see why. It's because it would give him control over the church in his country. But it was more than just about appointing bishops. It was about actually having control within your own land. 
And he wanted the power to judge heresy trials. If a priest in the Middle Ages was caught doing something, he was excluded from a normal court of law. He had a a church court. Perhaps uh, on the bench would be some of his mates. So people were fed up with this, and they wanted justice. And so the king wanted the right to try heresy trials. He won. Do you know how he won? Anyone know in 1513? It's quite fun. He got his army, went and beat up the Pope's army, and he beat them. And so he won. It was as simple as that. His army was bigger than the Pope's army, so he won. And basically, people began to think, hang on, perhaps the Pope isn't quite as powerful as we thought. Do you see? And so he started asserting their independence and identity. And the Reformation, again, had all kinds of different uh, impacts and and, and so on. And um, we don't have time to talk more about that. Uh, But, you know, there was this strong urge for the personal, the need for personal understanding and working it out for yourself and saving faith that is personal rather than just sort of sitting there as pew fodder in a church and thinking that that'll be enough. Now, the backside, the, 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 the flip side of that is that this is where the growth of Western individualism begins. It's in the Reformation desire for people individually to have their own faith in God and trust in themselves. Now, we would say that that's a very good thing. I still would. But actually, you can trace individualism from this point. Well, that's a very sort of quick overview of that. We're going to get even quicker now, and we're going to begin to look at the challenges to this way of thinking. Uh, And this is very complicated, and I'm not a philosopher, Uh, you might be relieved to hear, so I can't go into all the sort of depth of stuff. I can just give you a big picture. What we've got next is the age of reason and the Enlightenment. And what you begin to see is that the Reformation began to sort of rattle the cages a bit, Uh, but many of the assumptions, certainly if you look at Luther and Calvin, they kept the same big picture meta-narrative, if you like. Creation, the return of Christ, sin, the cross, heaven and hell... Most of those assumptions were pretty much intact, and so many of the, the Renaissance, you know, some of the great artists like Michelangelo or, or um, Leonardo or whoever it was, they had these sort of assumptions as well. But the, the, the cage is getting rattled, and as time goes on, people start breaking the cage open and saying, no, this is not actually reality. This is not how things are. And one of the sort of classic names is, is Rene Descartes. Here he is at the top left, good-looking chap. Uh, He was a theist. He believed in the reality of God, but he had massive influence on Western philosophy. And much of what you have after him is either an acceptance or a reaction against him. So he's profoundly influential. And people talk about Cartesian thought. That comes from his name, Descartes. And the key statement that he made, you'll all know, is the famous cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Now, this gets the ball rolling even faster for the whole individualism of the West. In other words, how do I know reality? Well, I know reality because here I am sitting on my own in my study and I'm thinking. Therefore, I know I am. Therefore, I am. Therefore, I exist. This is reality, folks. I am not because of God. An understanding of reality that actually leaves God out. Not because Descartes didn't believe in God, but because he doesn't need to use God to help understand myself. So I am when I'm thinking. See, people get, see what I'm getting at? So I, I'm thinking, here I am. I can know reality. I don't need to know that there's a God to know that I'm real and that I exist. Okay? And basically, this 
really empowers the whole concept of human reason being able to be all-powerful. And in time, this sort of progression of thought would do away with the need for God altogether. And there was a progress from deism to atheism. Now, deism believes in a creator who then says, right, I've done that, and moves on. Now, if you think about it, most people here are wearing watches. You have a watch. Hopefully it's working. It tells you that it's nearly quarter past 11, so you're thinking, "Mm, we need a break in a minute. So you're looking at your watch. Now, have you ever met the person who made your watch? No, I think mine was made in Taiwan or something. I've never been to Taiwan, and there's no way that I'll probably ever meet the guy who made this. But it works. It carries on. Now, the deist view of the world is a bit like that. He put it all together and then moved on to something else. So they believe in creation, but they do not believe in his sustaining involvement and power and intervention. And why have things gone wrong in the world? Well, it's basically because, like anything mechanical, after a while it begins to go wrong. So I don't expect that this watch will last me my lifetime. Things will go wrong with it. And then eventually I'll have to get a new one, do you see? That is the sort of deist worldview, and it explains why things are not quite as they should be. And it makes sense. And it certainly does away with the need for believing in miracles or anything like that, do you see? Now, it's actually quite a short journey to go from that to atheism. Many of the sort of first Enlightenment folks were deists. Many of the founding fathers of the United States were deists. But in time, uh, atheism began to take hold. And there's a famous story of the French astronomer and uh, mathematician Laplace, this chap down here, um, who was uh, talking to uh, Napoleon once about a book that he'd written on um, astronomy. Um, And Napoleon was so impressed with him, he made him a a marquis. But uh, Napoleon remarked to him and said, "Um, why have you left God out of your book on astronomy? And his classic response, I have no need for that hypothesis. I have no need for that hypothesis. I can explain it without God. And then, of course, this had its impact in politics, because basically, if you think about it, they're they're trying to sort of work out what's wrong with the world, and oppression is what's wrong with the world, and they're beginning to rattle the cages, cages of the ancien regime, in other words, the old political structures, particularly in France, but not just in France, in the colonies, particularly in America. The American colonies were beginning to say, why should we pay all these taxes to London? What have the English ever done for us, type thing? And they're beginning to think, no, hang on, the old way of doing things is not quite the way it should be. And they start challenging that. And the era of freedom and liberation and the rights of man is on its way. And this leads to the modern era. I hope you don't feel that this is all sort of very remote and stuff. I think the nearer we get to us, the more you will relate to, and you think, yes, that's exactly what's going on, I hope. But the modern era is sometimes, it's very hard to date, but it's sometimes dated from the French Revolution to the fall of the Berlin Wall. So 1789 and 1989, they're just very neat uh, sort of pegs to try and do it. It's it's not fixed at all. Uh, But basically it's where the outworking of the Enlightenment becomes reality in terms of what's going on in countries and society. In the Enlightenment, it was just a few people thinking, talking, having coffee, and doing all the rest. And the ideas there begin to sort of spread to the, to the sort of street level. And modernity is where you find these things uh, um, coming out. Now, who am I? Well, basically, the modern world actually does away with the pre-modern framework. 
So off goes God, off goes heaven and hell, off goes, well, if there's no God, there's no sin, is there? Because sin is about rebellion against God. If you get rid of God, there's no sin. And so basically, who we have, yes, there's a world, yes, there's death at the end of it, but this is our life. But the interesting thing is that the framework of the old worldview is maintained, it's just contracted, so you get something like this. Basically, it all contracts, the universe, if you like, contracts. There's no God. The old order of things, which was just God's order in the pre-modern, that now becomes the problem. Before it was just normality, now that itself is the problem. We need liberation from that oppression in society, the feudal system. And so we're going to solve it by having a revolution. And there's a picture of the guillotine. And then here is us. We're striving together in society to build our utopia. We're going to build heaven on earth. We're still going to die at the end of it. We have this closed system, but we're going to do everything we can to work at it. A picture without God. And basically, it's the drive for autonomy. Human beings at it uh, together on our own. So who am I? Well, I'm a thinker with rights. And I have a part to play in this building of this great new society. And so there's the progress of knowledge, of the search of science and understanding the world. We're at the center of the universe, and we've got to understand more. And uh, this is where you have these wonderful pictures by Joseph Wright of Derby which I think just capture the, the, the sort of atmosphere of the era. Basically, it's completely pitch black in the background, you see. And here they are, these sort of scientists, really sort of demonstrating what they've learned. And basically, it's about a bird being shown to die without oxygen in the jar, which is why the children are horrified. But basically, this is the sort of relentless search for knowledge. And um, you know, everyone's just fascinated. And here's the scientist sort of staring out, willing us to join him in this discovery of the world and how it works. And then there's the other picture of the orrery. In other words, here you have the solar system encapsulated in a model that we can get our heads around. It's all there. And notice the guy on the left, um, the scientist assistant, astutely taking notes, recording, um, you know, um, articulating how the universe is. Just fantastic. But what I just love is uh, Joseph Wright is brilliant at painting light. And, the, you know, these sort of images of it don't capture that uh, enough. Uh, they're in very impressive paintings. One of them's in the National Gallery, so you can look at it. Uh, but basically, this is the picture of the Enlightenment. The light comes from the things that have been discovered. And around them is just darkness. Do you see? It just captures the excitement of finding out how the world is. Now, this carries on all the way to Star Trek. And you remember Captain Kirk in the original? Space, the final frontier. These are the Voyager's starship Enterprise, their mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no, one has gone bef- no man has gone before. It's very interesting when you get to Star Trek The Next Generation, it's changed to no one. That's the same principle, extending the boundaries of our knowledge. So do you see, it's the same framework as the Christian framework, but it's contracted, it is closed. It's just us making the best of it. Science and technology knows no bounds. There's no God to rebel against, but there is oppression to liberate people from. And therefore, revolution is the key. And this will lead to the greater good as we muck in together, make progress towards the new Jerusalem built on England's green and pleasant land. Let me just finish this session with just one or two details, and then, then we'll have a quick break. 
What's going on in modernism? Well, there are two great visions, and these will resonate with you today, I know. One is liberation, freedom. What is America called? It is the land of the free, and with good reason. And the French Revolution was about liberation. It went horribly wrong very quickly, but the, 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 uh, the optimism at the beginning of it particularly, and certainly the optimism in the American Revolution, which didn't go wrong, or did, depending on your point of view, was about liberation from oppression, but not just human oppression, but from the liberation of the oppression of dogma and superstition. And that included Christianity and God. And the U.S. Constitution is very much a document of the Enlightenment, articulating these great ideals of liberty. And then a second vision is one of progress. Things are always getting better. And whatever happens, we will make them better. We just have to put our minds to it. You need to think about it. And this will lead to progress economically, lifestyles, knowledge, civilization, reason. We're going to make progress. Now, the very interesting thing about um, the American dream, particularly, is that that's precisely what this is saying, isn't it? And one of the reasons why Generation X, as it's sometimes called, those born between 1960 and 1980, has grown up so strongly in the, in the United States and in Europe, is because they suddenly realized that their lives are not going to be of a greater lifestyle than their parents'. That's one of the things, that's one of the, the, the chinks in the whole armor. They've suddenly realized, no, actually... It's not going to be the sort of shiny, brand new sort of um, cars of the 50s and 60s. Suddenly, actually, people are realizing, no, it's, it's, it's not going to get better. Even the baby boomers of, uh, of today, they're living a better lifestyle, inverted commas, on the whole, than their parents. Generation X will not. They will not have, have as well-paid jobs. They might not be able to keep their jobs. They might not be able to afford an education. They might not actually be able to do anything better than work in McDonald's which is why there is a phrase, and I've noticed it's very interesting. If you go into McDonald's, or I've seen posters of it, it's called a muck job. Have you heard of that phrase? Well, basically, McDonald's have called on to this, and they're advertising muck jobs now. They've realized that if you can't beat them, you've got to join them. And so they're saying, come and have a muck job. And basically, a muck job is throwaway. It doesn't last two ticks. It pays terribly, and it gives you absolutely no satisfaction in life. But that could be all you're going to manage. Is anyone here a fan of Lost? Okay, if you haven't seen Lost, I won't talk about it. You need to see it, because I don't want to spoil the plot. I think Lost is awesome. But anyway, there we are. There are two ideological pillars. First is scientific materialism. In other words, the idea that life can be understood, it can be ordered, it can be planned within human understanding without the need for God. So basically, just everything that is material. It does away with the supernatural, and it believes that progress will happen because human nature is essentially good, but basically people are trapped, they're, they're lacking in opportunity or, or whatever it is. So if we work hard, we can give everybody the opportunity and life will be so much better. But it's not guaranteed for everyone, and Darwin's uh, theories are very influential here, um, and particularly the idea of survival of the fittest, and this works out into a particularly horrific uh, ideal called social Darwinism, and this had a massive influence on Nazism much later, although you can't blame Darwin for that. Um, but basically, the survival of the fittest, you've got to be strong and you'll succeed and so on. Thomas Huxley was known as Darwin's bulldog, that's him there, and he popularized and articulated a lot of Darwin's ideas and spread them around. And he had that famous debate with the Bishop of Oxford, uh, a chap called uh, Wilberforce, who was a descendant of 
William Wilberforce, it was Samuel Wilberforce, and basically uh, they had this, you know, the bishop tried to make a joke about saying, well, you're descended from apes and all this sort of stuff, and that's why you get that cartoon of Darwin there. But basically everyone agrees that Huxley won the debate, hands down, and had a massive impact, and basically popularized the ideas of evolution, which meant you could understand for the first time with intellectual integrity an understanding of human beings without God at all. And basically, this set in motion the whole appeal, the whole desire to understand a theory of everything, which is culminating in people like Stephen Hawking, you know, with his brief history of time and his desire to have a, basically a theory of everything. In many ways, he is straight out of a modernist mindset that says we can get a theory of everything. We can understand God is basically what he thinks in the end, if we put our minds to it. I, and then you have the idea of humanism. And basically, I think this is brilliantly illustrated by the panopticon. Has anyone heard of the panopticon? Yep. Uh, basically, yes, life can be understood without recourse to God. That flows in part out of evolution and all that sort of stuff. The panopticon is an illustration of how human beings have replaced God. God, we believe, is omniscient and omnipotent. That's the classical theistic understanding of a biblical God. He knows everything. He can do anything omniscient. He knows everything. Why? Because he has an all-seeing eye. Panopticon literally means all-seeing. And Jeremy Bentham was a theorist, and he developed this idea of the panopticon as a prison. And the idea is that uh, he designed it so that you have the guard sitting in the middle, and there are louvered windows so you can see out, but you can't see into this guardhouse. And basically, the cells are situated all the way around the building, And basically, they have an open front to the middle. They can't see anybody else. They certainly can't see the guard. But because they don't know whether the guard is watching or not, they're going to behave. Do you see? It's exactly the same principle behind um, cameras in shops and why they put signs up saying, you are on TV. Because they think that'll stop you doing something illegal. Even if the TV is off, you have no way of knowing it. Half the traffic cameras around the country are actually off. But you don't know that, so in theory, you slow down. That is the panopticon principle. And basically, because of technology these days, we are living in a super panopticon. A Londoner is the most photographed person on the earth. Did you know that? You are on TV hundreds of times every day. People are watching you. You have no idea who or where or why. But basically, this is a classic illustration of humanism taking the attributes of God, saying, I want to do that. Why? In order to control people. It controls you, doesn't it? Because you don't know who's watching and you don't know what's being recorded and what could be used in evidence against you. It's clever, isn't it? Now, these are the theories. How does this work out in practice? Just for one last minute and then we will stretch our legs. I will keep to time, I promise. I'll try. There are two sociological pillars. In other words, how does this work out in practice? Well, one is technology makes it possible. Human mastery over the natural order and the application of science means that these theories don't stay theories. They become reality in exactly the same way this has become reality with the closed-circuit TV. That would have been impossible even 30 years ago, wouldn't it? There's a great optimism still about technology, although the fascinating thing is, in 1899, the American Commissioner for Patents confidently declared everything that can be invented has been invented. Over 100 years ago, how wrong he was... And yet that illustrates the sort of the arrogance of the human being master over the universe and we can conquer it all. And then the modern nation state puts these things in practice. It makes it possible. 
A state looks after people where God can't. State education, state orphanages, state hospitals, all these things that the church used to do in the Middle Ages. But no, God's not involved in that. The state can do it. The modern nation state is actually where people look to now for help. Or they did under modernism. Postmoderns are not so sure. But we'll come back to that. So there is a salvation offered by the secular state, believe it or not. Scientism, in other words, the belief that science rules uh, everything and determines everything, that offers us omniscience if we put our minds to it. Technism, in other words, the belief that technology is the answer, that gives us omnipotence. We can do things. We can build skyscrapers. We can build channel tunnels. We can send man to the moon. We can do anything through technology. We can do anything. Economism, these are invented words, but I got them from Walsh and Middleton there. They offer a glorious prosperity to all. Well, that's the theory. The three key figures... Darwin, Freud, and Marx all explain society, human beings, a personality without God. We are who we are. We, are, we live amongst who we live. We exist because we exist without God. So basically, these provide, and many others do it as well, but these provide the intellectual platforms by which to say, yeah, I can be a modernist. This is what Marx said about religion. Religious suffering is at one and the same time the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sign of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of a soulless condition. It is the opium of the people. In other words, religion was the way the old world order used to keep people in their place because they say, God put you there. And Marx is saying, but that's not right, because he sees what happens to people at the bottom of the pile. Marx, as we'll see in a minute, had a very good point. 